Hi, this is Michelle Weidenbenner, your Chief Hope Builder. I am the author of Mom's Letting Go Without Giving Up, Seven Steps to Self-Recovery. You can download that for free at momslettinggo.com. Welcome to the podcast that will help you feel at least 15% better. Feel free to join our Facebook private group, Mom's Letting Go, also, and surround yourself with other moms who understand your pain. If you would like to take your journey into a deeper accountability and recovery for yourself, join us at momslettinggo.teachable.com where we have a subscription membership. We have a tribe of moms who are all together in support groups and coaching and we study together and grow together and we are going to write a book together so that we can help other moms come into recovery with hope and determination and a way to find their own identity and recapture their purpose that they lose in the throes of dealing with an addicted loved one. If you find this podcast helpful, please subscribe and leave us a review because that's how other moms will be able to find us too. God bless. Hey moms, it's Michelle, your chief hope builder. Today I have Edie Weinstein here and I met Edie because she and I are both um, going to be speaking on the stage with TEDx in October, the very first day of October. And I met Edie and thought, oh my goodness, you moms need to hear her story. She has over 40 years experience as a counselor and a therapist with a bachelor's of arts in psychology and a master's in social work. She's had more than 25 years experience as a writer, interviewer, and editor. Her specialties include colorful and creative writing as a freelance journalist and author. She's a dynamic, inspiring speaker and workshop facilitator, an interfaith minister who offers unique spiritual services and rituals, including weddings, baby blessings, funerals, rites of passage, and house blessings. And I um, heard her TEDx talk, and I was just... uh, Oh, I just absolutely loved it. And I wanted to share a little bit of her and her um, overcoming the taboo of touch. And that is the topic of her TEDx talk. So help me welcome Edie. Thank Thank you you. for coming. I'm so excited. I'm glad to be here. Thank you. Yeah. So um, tell us a little bit about your TEDx talk and how, how you got that idea. Okay, absolutely. Well, first of all, um, I'm looking forward to sharing the stage with you and a number of people in our our, um, coaching group. And I've wanted to do a TED Talk for as long as I can remember. The first one I saw was with Elizabeth Gilbert, and she was talking about creativity and the creative muse. And I felt like she was speaking to me. And I said, I want to do with that, you know, what she's doing. So um, I've you know, created something that I thought would be not just interesting to people, but could change lives. And that's the whole focus, you know, ideas worth sharing. So when I worked with our coach, Caesar, um, he said, tell me, you know, tell me about your idea. 
Um, so rolling back the clock to the 19, mid 1980s, and I was in graduate school at Rutgers University in Camden, New Jersey, working on my MSW, Master of, uh, I call it Master of Saving the World, um, <laughs> not just Master of Social Work. <laughs> and that ties in very nicely with what we're going to talk about too. Yes. With- your your listeners. So when I was in grad school, I did a paper that earned me a scholarship, like a a partial scholarship. And it was on counseling practitioners views on using touch as a therapeutic modality, because the idea is we were not supposed to touch our clients, no handshakes, no hugs, no hands on the shoulder, nothing physical. Mm -hmm. And the reason we were told was because of transference and counter-transference and uh, people um, who are trauma survivors and abuse survivors and crossing boundaries, all kinds of things like that. So when I mentioned it to Caesar, he says, well, let's turn that on its head and let's talk about good reasons to touch your clients. And I said, with consent, because that's all, you know, what this is all about. And I said, well, what would it be like if when you meet your client for the first time, they're willing to shake your hand, or if they're crying, they ask you for a hug, you're not going to sit there stoically, you're going to hug them. Um, when they're leaving the office, you put your hand on their shoulder, again, all with, with verbal consent, all with their permission. So that's essentially what my TED Talk is about, um, is overcoming that taboo of touch, because we live in such a touch-negative society. Touch is either... Um, limited, sexual, abusive, coercive, or non-existent. And chances are some of your listeners grew up in homes that fit that criteria. Blessedly, I didn't. I grew up in a home where touch was abundant. Um, Lots of hugs and kisses and I love yous growing up. So I would tell my parents that they raised me to do this kind of work, this consent work, this touch work. And um, when people don't get enough nurturing touch, just like babies, when adults don't get enough nurturing touch, they fail to thrive too. And that results in depression, suicidality, addiction, um, loneliness, particularly now during the pandemic. Um, as we're, we're talking now, we're two, two years and what, two months into it. And so many more people are lonely and isolated mm-hmm. and don't get enough nurturing touch. And, um, you know, I tell the store, uh, several stories about how touch saves lives. Um, I'm the founder of Hug Mobsters Armed with Love. And this group was created in 2014, Valentine's Day weekend, 2014. I brought a group of friends to 30th Street Station, which is the big train station in Philadelphia. And I gathered us together for a free hugs flash mob. And uh, I love we're, this story. Yeah, it was, it was just you know, picture this free yeah, hug, oh yeah, there flash mob. Flash free hugs, flash mob. Yep. So um, we, all, we made up our free hug signs. And at noon, we unleashed ourselves on the station. And one of our friends is a, um, a singer, performer, and he was walking around playing the song, Give a Little Bit, Give a Little Bit of Your Love to Me, over and over. Oh, I don't know how many times he played it in an hour. And we would approach people and said, would you like a hug? And there were people that were waiting for trains, that were getting on trains, getting off trains. There was a couple getting married. They didn't want to hug. They, they just kind of waved us off. But we, uh, a friend of ours videotaped the, the whole afternoon. And we estimated that within an hour's time, we hugged about 200 people. And there were 12 of us. And one person that just stole my heart um, was an Iraq, Iraq war vet who approached us and um, said he was the only survivor of his platoon and he had survivor's guilt. And he had thought about ending his own life 
he said, until I met you people, can I join you? So of course we gave him a sign and he was off to the races. Now, I don't know where he is. I don't know if he's still alive. I hope that he is. And I hope that he found a sense of peace. And that's when it occurred to me, hugs save lives. So fast forward to June of that year and I'm on my way home from the gym after a normal workout. I was at the gym five or six hours a week and I had a heart attack. Literally, as I was driving, I, had, I was in the middle of a heart attack. And for women, heart attack symptoms are very different than men's symptoms. Torrential sweats, jaw, like somebody went grabbed my jaw and I couldn't move. It was like paralyzed. Oh. Um, heartburn, palpitations, dizziness, lightheadedness. It wasn't the, the crushing left arm and chest pain that men get. So instead of driving myself straight to the hospital, I drove home. And I called the counseling center that I was working at at the time. I was working in an outpatient drug and alcohol rehab. And I said, I'm not feeling very well. Can you cancel my clients for today? And then I thought, oh, I'm sweaty. I need to get in the shower. I said, what are you doing, woman? You know how you have these, these inner yes. conversations? What the heck are you doing? Get to the hospital. And recovering codependent workaholic that I was, back, or am now, that I was an active workaholic codependent back then i drove myself to the hospital oh my god 911 crazy oh. so the hospital is only like 10 12 minutes away so i stumble into the er and i say i think i'm having a heart attack they whisk me up to the cardiac cath lab and um i had a, a stent you know had a cardiac catheterization and a stent inserted so after the surgery was over the surgeon came to me with two pictures one was what my um led let you know, the, the, the one where they see, they call it the Widowmaker heart attack, Yeah, 100% blockage. So bef before the stent was inserted, it looked like a broken tree branch. And afterwards it was popped back up. And he said, don't let this happen again. And I said, well, how did it happen in the first place? He said, well, tell me your history. My mother had died of congested heart, fa congestive heart failure um, in 2010. So this was four years after, almost four years after she died. Um, I was working 12 to 14 hour days, maybe sleeping five or six hours a night. Mm. Um, I thought I was eating healthfully and mostly vegetarian diet, but a lot of it was high in sodium. So my blood pressure was through the roof. Oh. And he said, you need to slow down. You need to change your diet. You're going to be going to cardiac rehab for a few months. So friends came in to visit me and um, they're both, they were both involved in the mental health system as well. And Janet says, I demand to speak with your social worker. This person needs to know what your lifestyle is and tell you, you have to take two weeks off of work. And Phil, her husband leans over me and he's, he's from New York. He was from New York. He's, he has since died. Um, but he leans over and he says, you go back to work next week. I come over and break both your legs. <laughs> <laughs> and I believed him. So I knew they cared. You know, I knew they cared oh, about me. Um, so my boss at the time said, we're not going to let you in the door. We will take care of everything. Go relax. So for two weeks, I was laying on the couch watching the ceiling fan spin. Oh. And I had talked to a friend who had had a heart attack a few months before I did. And I said, how did you do this? He says, well, Susan made me take time off work, his wife. And he said, I was talking to somebody who was telling me about their heart attack. And they went right back to work immediately. And um, he said something like, don't let your heart attack go to waste learn from oh. it. And what I say about it is that the woman that I was died that day to give birth to, to the one who's talking to you now. And oh. she had to die because she was killing me. 
Now I didn't lose consciousness. I didn't, you know, it was not a near death experience. So during cardiac rehab, I walked through my little town of Doylestown, Pennsylvania. And I thought, why don't I combine the hugging with the walking? So I made up a sign and I stood on a street corner, um, corner of state and Maine in this little town and offered free hugs. And now all these years later, seven, eight, eight years later, um, June, June, um, 15th of 24th of this year will be eight years. Um, I'm kind of a staple in the town. Like people recognize me without my sign and I've hugged all over the country. I've hugged in Canada. And then in 2018, I took the trip of a lifetime the year I turned 60 to Ireland. So I hugged my way across Ireland. Um, so I realized in my own life, how, how hugs were sustaining for me. And during the pandemic, I was off duty. I couldn't do it. Um, you know, I live alone and the only, you know, I hugged myself. <laughs> that was pretty much it. Yeah. And um, my grandchild, my grandson was born. Um, he was like an early pandemic baby. He was born um, January 21st of 2020. And I was one of his caregivers in the beginning. And once the pandemic hit, I, I didn't see him for 11 weeks. Oh. So I did not hug another human being for 11 weeks. Oh. And the only sentient being that I hugged during that time was my cousin's dog. Oh. I went to visit my cousin Jody, and we were sitting like 20 feet apart in her yard. And Maddie, who's his chocolate lab, was running back and forth between us. So you know how big dogs think they're yeah. lap dogs? Yeah. And I didn't so. care that she was muddy. I don't care. You know, I just like, oh. Yeah, just, yeah, let me hug yeah. you. Right. Yeah. So now I'm, I'm doing it again. I'm, you know, I'm back out there in the world doing it. You just feel safer now. And, you know, I, with my grandson and now my new granddaughter who was born, um, May the 6th. And so I get to, I get to cuddle them. Thank you. They're my favorite cuddlers. Yes. So how, how often I've, I've seen addicted loved ones who aren't getting hugged because people are afraid of them. People don't understand them. And oftentimes their moms uh, those, those moms that are in our group, I get it. They, um, they cannot handle the trauma of even seeing their child because of the addiction and what it does to them. And I don't know, maybe you could speak into that because you've had a lot of experience working with recovering addicted loved ones too. So, um, any words of wisdom for moms out there? I don't know how wise it is, but the first thing I would tell parents of someone with an addiction or any loved one of someone with an addiction is know that you're going along the journey with them, but you can't fix it. That's the hardest thing for a parent to see Mm -hmm. is that I can't kiss all the boo-boos and make them better. And I would encourage them, and you've probably talked about this on the show, to get themselves some support as well whether it's Al-Anon or CODA, Codependence Anonymous, have a group, just like it's encouraged that people with addictions have sober supports. It's important that families have that support as well. And to do some kind of like self-evaluation and ask yourself, how do you feel about this person? You know, they are still your child, even though they're, they're doing self-destructive things, even though you're up at night worrying about them, even though they may have stolen from you, or they may have been aggressive with you. This is still your child. So what kind of self-compassion can you offer while you're offering it to them? And if you can remember 
the first time you held this child, mm-hmm. you know, whether they're your, your birth child or an adopted child, um, what was it like to hold that mm-hmm. little being in your arms? Mm-hmm. And can you still see that person inside someone who might be shooting up, someone who might be living on the street, someone who, you know, who might be living in a bottle, um, you know, that, can you still see that innocent little being in there? And I'm not saying it's, it's okay to, you know, to accept the behavior. And it's so hard sometimes to tease out the behavior from the person, you know, so as much as you'll, they'll allow it, as much as you'll allow it when you're with them, see if they'll allow you to hug them. And if, and if you can, you know, if you can deal with that yourself. Right. Um, And, and I imagine that the, the moms who listen to this are lonely because this is the child that they had, you know, they wanted by their side and now they might not even know where they are or whether they're alive. Yeah. They're grieving. They're grieving for the loss of dreams they had. Yep. They have for that child and for the relationship that they always envisioned that they would have. And I think it was in uh, November, our month of gratitude, uh, last couple of years, every year I've done this. And that is kind of like what you said is try to remember the person and all the gifts that they have and who they are and who they were before addiction hacked their brain, right? So, um, and that has really been helpful for for moms because every day we had to come up with one thing that we loved about our addicted or recovering child. And, And it was, it was just another way to remember them. It was hopeful. It was hopeful. So, um, and you mentioned earlier about your, your wanting to please all the time. And I think oftentimes women, especially just feel like you said you have your degree in saving the world. Like, um, we, we so want to help in the right ways. How did you get over being that codependent people pleaser? I don't know if there's a getting over, um, but it, but it is, you know, I, it feels to me like a work in progress. Um, one of my dearest friends um, who's, who's been in recovery for 51 years, she's been sober 51 years, calls herself a recovered codependent. She doesn't, I don't think she calls herself a recovered alcoholic, but she calls herself a recovered codependent. And I don't know how that would be for me. Um, she's learned, you know, she's taught me, she was actually the one that kicked my butt into recovery from codependence. Um, I went to a five and a half day program out of a, um, a rehab in our area called Livingren. It's um, near Philadelphia. And there they, you know, they taught me about boundaries because I was not very good at them at all. And unlike a lot of codependents, I grew up in a very loving, nurturing, accepting family. I never felt like my parents um, like that I couldn't meet their expectations. I couldn't meet my expectations and their love didn't feel conditional, but I wanted it so much that I didn't want to lose it. So I called myself little Shirley Temple tap dancing for approval. Um, and I learned to practice savior behavior because who wouldn't love a caregiver, right? So my husband, um, who died in 1998 used to say to me that I was an emotional contortionist 
who would bend over backwards to please people. I don't know where he got that from, but it was brilliant. Um, I was a deer caught in the headlights when it came to making decisions. And I'm a Libra. So it's all about, you know, balance and, you know, trying to figure out the right thing to do. And the third thing that he said was that I was a deer caught in the headlights when it came to making decisions. Oh, he he said that. And the third thing he said was, um, I was always looking over my shoulder to see if the propriety police were watching. Like, am I being a good girl? Because a lot of recovering women codependents are, you know, good girls. Um, They don't want to make waves. They don't want to... draw too much attention to themselves or walking on eggshells a lot. And I did that, you know, I didn't want any of anybody to be mad at me. I didn't want any disapproval. Yeah. So I, you know, every, just about every career path I took was in a caregiving role, you know, a social worker, therapist, um, minister. Um, you know, I was a lifeguard for a while, I, you know, so wow. I realized people have to save themselves and what is it they say in, in AA that you didn't cause it, you can't control it, you can't cure it in somebody right. else? Yeah. And I had to give that up. So that time in Living Grin was helpful. Um, I had a pivotal moment um, that when I, I started going to CODA meetings, Codependence Anonymous meetings, after Living Grin. I went for five, about five years, six years, something like that. Wow. And during that time period, my husband was very ill. He had hepatitis C. Mm-hmm. And I was just, you know, probably caregiver and and in and out of, he was in and out of the hospital multiple times. So in my meeting was a young man um, who was 21 years old, something like that. And I was, I was almost 40 at the time. So I guess he looked at me as kind of like a big sister, maybe even a mother figure, kept asking me to be a sponsor. And I said, first of all, I can't be your sponsor. You need a man to be your sponsor. Second of all, even though I'm a therapist, I am so new to this recovery, I wouldn't do you any good. And third, my husband is very ill and I don't have the time to devote to being anybody's sponsor. And in all the years that I was there, I never sponsored anybody. And that was one one gift I gave to myself. So the night, the day that my husband died, he was in the ICU at Jefferson, which is a hospital in Philly. And we turned off life support. He he was in a coma, you know, liver transplant never happened. And my parents were there and they drove home with me here and the phone rang. And back then I had a, you know, a wall phone, a, you know, a point, I'm pointing to the kitchen over there. Oh, yeah. uh, you know, I had a landline yeah. and I answered the phone and it was this kid and he starts talking to me. And I said, please call somebody from the phone list. I said, not only can I not be your sponsor, I can't even talk to you right now. My husband just died, but, but, and I said, I'm hanging up. And I felt such a sense of elation. Like I said no to somebody and yeah. lightning didn't come crashing down and the floor didn't swallow me up. So that was the beginning of the end of the wow. codependent. Didn't stop then. I still had to raise a child as a single parent. You know, 11, my son was 11 at the time and he's 35 oh. now. So I, you know, I had a hard time with that, you know, saying no, setting boundaries. Yes. And, you know, um, I took on projects that I didn't have the time for. I said yes to anybody who wanted to pick my brain about ideas and, um, you know, when I think about all, and you probably have this happen too, when you think about all of the time and energy and, and knowledge that you've given away, you'd be a gazillionaire, yeah. you know, if you got paid yeah. for, for all the wisdom you dispense, you'd be, you know, yeah. so I've learned to say yes only to what I can handle. And I've had to turn down jobs. I've had to turn down assignments sure. because I, I don't have the time for everything. And you would, and you would probably say that it was that 
day after your heart attack that you decided you were going to, that person was going to die and it was a yep. rebirth of somebody new. Yep. And, and from that day forward, then you started being able to, to delineate your boundaries mm -hmm. better yep. and say no. So um, I, am, I, I just can't get over how many people, including myself at times, struggle with boundaries. Do you feel like this is a universal problem? Mm -hmm. Yep. And, yeah. And, and I don't want to pigeonhole my gender, but I think women are trained to say yes. You know, we don't want to upset the apple cart. We don't any, want anybody to be mad at us. Um, boundaries in relationships. There's so many women um, who say yes to things they don't want to say yes to, including sex, because they don't want the person to be mad at them or because they think they're supposed to say yes. Yeah. Um, and, and any kind of touch. You know, like, like the, you know, the hashtag me, there, there aren't too many women that we know that haven't had their boundaries crossed in minor or major ways um, yeah. about touch. Now, I'm sure that men have a difficult time with boundaries themselves with a lot, you know, what I, what I told my son, um, I forget how old he was, so I'm 11, 12, you know, right after my husband died, um, we talked about the idea that not only does no mean no, but only yes means yes. And anybody is free to change their mind, including you, you know, that if, if somebody wants, you know, sexual interaction with you that you don't want, you say no. Right. And, and you know, from what I know, he's been a gentleman within every relationship he's been in and, and wow. hoping, I'm hoping, you know, I raised him well for, now. Yeah. For teaching him that so early. I don't think I ever, now I do with my grandkids, you know, I, I had to, uh, I was guardian for, for several years when their parents were in active addiction. And so that was one of the things that I made sure, you know, we talked about a bit, quite a bit, because the youngest is definitely a people pleaser. And um, the idea of saying no, just really most of the time didn't even cross her uh, consideration in mm -hmm. a lot of things that she does with her peers. And it's scary. So um Good for you for being intuitive enough to talk. And so many kids learn boundaries from their parents. And so, mm -hmm. um, but did you have, like, it sounds like you had a similar childhood that I did. My parents were really good at setting boundaries. I mean, we knew what we could do and what we couldn't do. And yep. there was, you know, uh, did you have the same? Uh, yeah, they did. There were rules. And um, I followed the rules because I respected my parents. I was not afraid of them. There was no um, physical, I don't, I don't even like calling it discipline. Nobody got hit. <laughs> okay. We don't, yeah. you know, that's, right. that's one of my, um, I'm an outspoken advocate about that, that hands off when you're angry with somebody, you don't touch them. And, you know, even spanking, you know, hitting another human being teaches them that a bigger, stronger person can control a smaller, weaker person with aggression. And I hear people say, well, I got hit and I was okay. And I ask them this question. I say, if what was done to you was done by that person to another adult, like an adult stranger, could that person press, press assault charges? And if they say yes, I say, then that's abuse. And I said, let me ask you a second question. If what was done to you, if you're, if whoever hit you, hit a neighbor's child, could that parent press assault charges? And if the answer is yes, that's abuse. So there are, you know, there are certainly ways of helping people understand boundaries without physical aggression. 
And, you know, and if you want your child, if you want to model for them how to control themselves, emotional regulation, you, you better learn it yourself. <laughs> you know? Yes. Yep. Yes. Yep. So that's, that's a big one. So yes, I did have those boundaries. I, again, I wasn't afraid of my parents. I respected them. Yeah. Um, so what was the other thing that you had, you were just asking oh, about? Probably middle-aged moment. <laughs> oh, right out my brain. Yeah. You were talking about boundaries. Yeah, well, oh, 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 I know oh, one ahead. thing that I, that I was going to say, it was about touch with children that um, when I do the free hugs thing and there's a child there, um, I'll, I'll say to the parent, if it's okay with you and okay with your child, can I hug your child? Because if mom and dad say, oh yeah, I'll go hug that lady, but the little kid's hiding behind mom or dad, I'll say, it's okay. You know, you know, and I said, this is a teachable moment. Um, and I said, you don't need to hug anybody that you right. don't want to hug. Right. Um, even my I grandson, um, he's very cuddly with me on his own terms. So when I'm leaving the house, you know, if one of them says, well, go hug Bubby, Bubby's Yiddish for grandmother. Um, and I'll say, do you want to hug Bubby? And sometimes he will, sometimes he won't. And I'll say, well, how about blow kisses? And he blows kisses. Um, so people yeah. need to understand, adults need to understand body sovereignty, that I yes. think that's one way to help prevent child sexual abuse is if they understand nobody touches my body unless, you know, I say so. Right. I love that. Um, so um, thanks for bringing that up. That's what yeah. I was thinking. It was like you were reading my mind. I first listened to you on a podcast. Do you remember what that was? It was about um, consent and, and yeah. consent, this whole topic to hug. Do you remember what that was? I don't know. I mean, I, I do a lot of podcasts. I think yeah. I know which one you're talking about, but I can't even remember who, okay. who it was. Ah. Well, I'll but, try to remember it and put okay. it in the show. Notes. But yeah. But I, I mean, I remember the content, but I don't remember who it was with. Um, so oh, yeah, no. consent, consent is important. I mean, we're, we're, we're taught that, um, like pregnant women, for example, you know, their bot, their bellies are, are, you know, are public property. Like people will pat, you know, pat a pregnant woman's belly without touching. I mean, yeah. even my daughter-in-law, when she was pregnant with my grandson, I said, is it okay? And she said, sure. Um, you know, so with her permission, I kissed her belly, <laughs> you know, yeah. and, um, you know, I, I think it's really important for people to, un you know, to understand that other thing, um, you know, women of color, their hair that, you know, somebody will say, Oh, what you know, beautiful braids you have. So they'll cut hands yeah. off. If yeah. It doesn't belong to you. It's the same rules that I, that I remember my mother teaching us whenever we'd go into stores where there were breakable items, our hands would have to go behind. Oh, yeah. She wasn't afraid we were going to steal something. She's afraid no. we were going to break something. Right. So the rule in our family was if it's not yours, don't touch it. You know, and no. if you want to touch something, ask first. Yeah. Good. Good. I, I get this question a lot and I don't, this might be a tough one for you to speak on in a few minutes, but oftentimes like, so when my son and daughter-in-law were in active addiction, they still wanted to see their kids. And oftentimes moms are so torn because they, they want the relationship to continue. But I always say, you've got a, you're the advocate, you're the guardian for the kids do you feel like they are going to be safe with their parents? Right. Um, and I, I don't know. I, I always um, had a mediator present um, during those times because I didn't want them telling some judge that I was keeping them from their kids. But I also right. knew that they weren't safe 
in their parents' home alone without somebody there because I didn't know who was coming and going. I didn't know anything, right? So can you speak into like how, what would you say to moms who want to initiate this relationship um, or continue the relationship with a parent that is in active addiction from their own children? Like where are, where are those boundaries? And can you speak into that just a little? Well, I don't, it depends on what the legal agreements are. Like if you have custody of, of your child or in your case, your grandchildren um, and the parents have visitation rights, usually isn't it set up with you know, a supervised visit? Well, in our case, we obtained legal guardianship with their signature. We were just went with a private attorney. So we were kind of, uh, what happens, at least in our state, because we thought, well, the state would get involved then and we would have some rules or laws to follow, right? No, it was just helter-skelter. And so I, I started just trying to find people that could help answer my questions and nobody could. So I had to establish my own boundaries right. with the situation. And um, we kind of just, went with our gut and um yeah <laughs> so did they want to see their parents your grandchildren no they didn't no. okay a lot of yeah. times they didn't but and that's where but see even the youngest one didn't want to go back to her parents after they were three years in recovery so you have to look at that and say would the state um disagree with that you know, I, I mean, how are we to play judge? Um, as guardians, yeah. it was, it's tough. It's a it is a tough call because I mean, I, I don't think kids have standing in court to make that decision until they're what, 12, 13, 14, yeah. um, you know, Some their situations. Yeah. So it, if, even if addiction's not an issue, um, there, there are family situations where the grant, like you, where the grandparent has car, um, guardianship, guardianship or, yeah. um, you know, of, of the child and the child is not yet a teenager, but doesn't want to see the biological parents. There are other reasons why, why that happens, why the grandmother has custody, but I think children should be able to say yes or no. Yeah. That's, that's my take on it. You know, as compassionate as I might feel toward the person in recovery, that child's welfare comes first. Yeah. And if the grandparent or another family member's home is more stable, more supportive, doesn't mean they should never see their parents, but I right. think it needs to be at the child's discretion. Yeah. You know, that mm-hmm. when, and, and again, I'm not in any way no, disrespecting right. people who, who are in active addiction because it's not, you know, they might have made the choice to use the first time, but after that, you know, the, the substance takes hold and their, you know, their ability to make decisions is, is not, not there. It's not, right. you know, not able to make healthy decisions. Yeah. Um, so it is, it is a very difficult choice to make. Um, and there's, you know, that whole, um, uh, what's it called? Not estrangement, um, parental alienation syndrome. Have you ever heard of that? No, term? I haven't. What's that? Yeah. It's a term that, that has to do with um, just what, you know, an example, if there's, if there's a custody hearing between the parents themselves and one parent says that the other parent is trashing them 
to the child. So of course they're not going to like the child or not that child's not going to like the parent rather, you know, that they're making up stories about them. Um, So I don't know what the experience of your listeners, uh, you know, are um, in terms of not, you know, not trash talking the the parent, you know, and and that's hard. It's really hard to do. Yeah. And if, you know, if you feel that the child is in danger, and I'm not even talking about physical danger, I'm talking about emotional danger, right? Ugh. You know, that if they go back to visit the parent in the home where the addiction was active, it could, you know, it could do emotional damage to the child, it could be, it could be right. traumatic going back there. Yeah. No. Wow. So it's a, it's, it's a tough call. And I don't know is. what the legalities are. Oh, yeah. Um, and that's, you know, it's again, it's a boundary. But I think you've you've raised some really good points, and it's it's like the consent with the hug. You know, you really have to delve into what is the child comfortable with, and where is their trauma, where does their trauma lie, and where where is that? And um, it's it's not always black and black and white. It's it's uh, very difficult. So, but um, I'm just trying. So, what was the hardest part of writing your TEDx talk? The hardest part was was narrowing it down, you know, because there's so many things I wanted to put in there, you know. Um, and Caesar was was brilliant at helping me do surgery, you know, like, hey, you gotta take this part out and this is stronger, and let's you gotta focus on the through line. And you know, for folks who don't know what I'm talking about, you know, the through line is the theme that that runs runs through it. And it's so I think that was the hardest part. And where I am right now with it is our, you know, we're October 1st. We're starting the coaching in, let's say the 15th. So six days from now, I think on the 21st is when it's the coaching part for that particular TED talk was supposed to start. And my biggest fear is my memory. Am I going to be able to remember this? Um, So I'm, I'm a spontaneous speaker. I can talk about anything. You throw a question at me and pretty, pretty much able to come up with it, but having to memorize, you know, a 14 minute or 15 minute talk and get it all down, you know, that's the scary part. And yeah, so what I've been doing is watch, you know, I've been practicing it myself. I've been sharing it with, with other people to get a sense of what it sounds like. And I've been watching a lot of other people's Ted talks. Yes. Good idea. And I, Mm -hmm. I try to share. So I went out and just started researching all the addiction um, Ted talks so that I could start sharing them with in, in my support groups, in my Facebook groups, because the more moms watch those, I think they're just so good. I, I found some really, really, really good ones. So, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, that's, that's a great, great advice for anybody, even if you're not um, looking to give a TEDx talk. So, and the through line, I kind of looked at that, like it was a thesis statement in, mm-hmm. in, Oh, writing an essay or something. It's your thesis paragraph. You know, what are you going to prove for the duration of your talk? And um, in my case, it was to start doing one thing and stop <coughs> doing something else. And I guess that's just how Caesar and I kind of formed that mm-hmm. big spot. You know, what are we going to stop doing and what are we going to start doing? Mm-hmm. So it helped. But yeah. the memorization, oh boy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And I'm older yeah. than you, so it's going to be hard. Yeah. Well, I think the, you know, the practice is going to help. Um, 
about four years ago, I think, um, I did a talk for um, the Good Men Project. That's one of the places that I write. And they had a storytelling hour um, in New York. And I was asked to tell, you know, tell, pick out a story. And the theme was travel. So I told a story called Meet You at the Gate. And I'll send you a copy of it if you want to hear okay. it. And it was about my journey with my parents. Um, they retired at 65, moved down to Florida. So I told, I started out telling the story about how the very first time I went down there to visit them, they met me at the gate. And that was when people were allowed <laughs> through yeah. you know, TSA and you know, all that. So they meet me at the gate. And as they got older, um, the distance between when I got off the plane and where I could meet them widened, you know, as, you know, as they aged. And so it was meet me at the gate. Then it was meet me at baggage claim. Then it was meet me at the car. And then um, my dad developed Parkinson's. So he couldn't even get out of the car at that time. And then um, when he got too sick, my mother, I had, you know, I had to take um, a, a cab or a van to their place because she couldn't leave him alone. Um, and then, then I talked about how um, after, you know, after he died, she'd be sitting out on the porch waiting for me. And then, then we talked about our hospice journey because she, she had been in, in hospice for six months before she died. And I would travel back and forth from Pennsylvania to Florida. And then I, you know, then I finally talked about um, how the last time I was down there was to, you know, to sell the condo and, and close it all up. Mm. Um, so I was terrified. The only time I'd ever had stage fright was in anticipation of this. And we, you know, we rehearsed it. It had to be memorized, same thing, 10 minutes. Um, and, um, I kept saying, well, you know, this story by heart, you've told it a million times. What's the big deal? Well, but it's New York city. Is that, that was it. It was just the location. Oh, it was the location. So, yeah. It was because it was New York, New York. It was a big deal. Oh. So I talked to friends who lived in New York at the time and she's a, um, a singer songwriter stage performer. She said, we will be there. We will be sitting in the front row. It was in a little, a little restaurant bar kind of place. So there were maybe 60 people there, wasn't even a big audience. And um, they were there for sound check. And I said, I can't see anything. She said, you're not gonna be able to see anything because of the lights in your eyes, but yeah. know that we're here and we're, you were listening. So I did the talk and um, afterward, like months afterward, I get an email from the person who had organized it. And she said, you were the best one there. We saved you for last because you were the best speaker. And I never knew that. Wow. So if wow. I could do that, I can do this. But I see people, you know, on, on the little red circles. And I, I actually got, I don't know whether I told you oh. that, but I got a little red rug. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I somebody else on, on our Facebook page got, you know, told us, you know, told us about it. So you can order it from Amazon. Um, so it's over what's, there in my dining room. What's the um, dimension? So, what's the radius? Or Oh, God. Um, you, I'm looking at it here. I think maybe three feet around, four feet around. Okay. Yeah. Um, if I could find the link, I'll send it to you. Oh, thank um, you. But it's a fuzzy, it's a fuzzy bathroom rug, actually. Oh and my goodness. You know, so I stand on it. I walk across it barefoot. I don't, I don't wear shoes walking on it. Um, so it's, it's kind of an anchor for manifesting what I want. Um, and I applied to like a dozen different stages. So since then, um, I was tapped for another stage but it was a week earlier than this one. And it was oh. closer to home. It was like half the distance of the one that we're doing in Ohio. And I, I decided that I wasn't even going to, I made it through the first round 
Um, and I wasn't even going to go any further because, you know, I made a commitment. So right. I said, it's, it was kind of like, you um, know, agreeing to go on a date with somebody and then, um, changing your mind because you got a better, better offer. Yeah. <laughs> I said, no, I'm not going to do that. Um, so I, I, I wrote a letter and I said, I appreciate it. And there's no way, cause I had talked to Caesar about the possibility of adapting it, doing a different talk. He said, no, 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 you're not going to have time. You're not no. going to, but he said, it would be kind of interesting to, um, to see, what would happen if you made it through the audition? I said, but I felt like I'd be doing it under false pretenses. So yeah, I couldn't I do it either. Good for yeah, you. Yeah. yeah. So it, you know, felt good. And um, yeah, we'll okay. see. But how, you know, so, so I, I told them I'd apply next year. Oh, I bet they'll be waiting for you. Really good for you. Maybe. That says something about your integrity and who you are. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. And how big of an audience do you think it'll be at the TEDx in Lima? Any idea? No clue. I don't know, yeah. you know, anything about, we can ask, you know, yeah. ask Amy. Um, right. But I remember something that a friend said, who's, you know, who's a internationally known speaker. He said, the message is the message, whether there's one person in the audience or a thousand right. people in the audience. Yeah. Uh, we're not going to be able to see him anyway. Right. Okay. Oh, I'm so right. glad you said that. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, you no, know, just, yeah. This was so good. Oh, thank, my pleasure. Thank you for sharing a part of you. There's, there's so much more we could talk about. If we did this again, what would you want to talk about? Oh, goodness. Um, one thing that I love talking about is, um, you know, manifesting the life of your dreams, you know, creativity, um, the Hansel and Gretel breadcrumb trail that brings you from where you were to where you are. I could talk about a gazillion different things. Um, okay. you know, I get to loss yeah. of grief because that's one of my specialties. Oh, too. grief. Talking okay. about loss and grief. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Both of those are so good. I'm launching my, I'm launching my next book, Unhackable Ooh, Moms. I like and that. It, it, it is a 30 day program, but it's to get moms to think about their boon, like their greatest desire, something that they've always wanted to do, but they put aside because of this <laughs> addiction in their life. And so I love the creativity and the dream idea yep. to talk to you about that. And then, but also so many, even if their kids are still living and in recovery, they're still grieving. Um, and we have trauma. And so the whole grief thing, I'd love to have you back and talk about a little bit about that. Sure. Uh, um, so maybe we will do that. Um, I don't know, within a few months, let's have sure. you back and do that. Anytime. I love it. This is one of my favorites and I'm grateful for the technology that allows us to do this. Aren't was, you? So, yeah. Oh, we, yep, I was, so, so can we hug goodbye? Like, how oh, is yes, that? Absolutely. Like this, like you go like this. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so um, the last support meeting I had, I told them all about you and I said, okay, Aww. when was the last time you all had a hug? And, and how many did you have today? And when did you hug yourself last? So we all yeah. stood there or sat yeah. in our Zoom meeting and hugged ourselves. So um, thank you Marvelous. so much for oh, your- my, my pleasure. Your inspiration. That's, you know, that's, what I, you know, that's what I'm here for. Yeah, but the TED Talk, there's going to be some hugging going on too. So you'll get to, oh, you'll get to see that. <laughs> I can't wait. Okay.